Sunset Lake CBD is a majority employee-owned hemp farm located right outside of Burlington, Vermont. Before they started growing hemp, Sunset Lake Farms produced cream for Ben & Jerry's. Sunset Lake CBD doesn't use any pesticides or herbicides to grow any of its hemp plants, and they use organic fertilizer and other sustainable farming techniques to ensure the long-term health of the soil and to minimize their carbon footprint. So like all of us, my days are really stressful. By the end of the night, my kids are in bed, I'm taking a minute to chill, but I'm still unwinding. I recently started using the Relax Gummies infused with CBD isolate, reishi mushroom extract, and ashwagandha root extract. I'm really glad I tried these because they really helped me get ready for a good night of sleep, and I really think I sleep better, so I'd highly recommend it. So check out Sunset Lake CBD today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code HFPOD for 20% off your order. That's sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code HFPOD for 20% off your order. Farmer-owned, Vermont-grown, Sunset Lake CBD. Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year And to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. I'm Amara Jones. Every day, the attacks on trans kids grow louder. And more anti-trans bills keep moving through state legislatures. In this season of the Anti-Trans Hate Machine, we're going to illuminate how the right wing has fueled these bills by generating a breathtaking and wide-ranging disinformation campaign. It's spreading like wildfire on the internet. It's then being discussed by families and churches. None of this is an accident. It's a strategy to delegitimize trans people and create a world where our existence is a question. Subscribe to season two of the Anti-Trans Hate Machine, a plot against equality, wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hey listeners, I want to tell you about a sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week, they host different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like O'Teal Burbridge, Trouble No More, former members of the band, Milk Carton Kids, Nikki Glaspie, Bill Frizzell, Sean Colvin, and many more. This June, join the Fab Foe, 
Joan Osborne, John Sebastian, Marshall Crenshaw, and a great group of faculty for the debut of Magical Mystery Camp. This all-inclusive, once-in-a-lifetime music vacation experience in the heart of the Catskills will be packed with nightly performances, workshops, speakers, song circles, open mics, and a lot more. If you're a performing musician at any level, bring your instrument. If you're a music lover, bring your good spirit. It's an amazing experience for individuals, friends, and couples alike. Registration is open, spots are filling up, so check it out soon. And scholarships are available. Check out magicalmysterycamp.com slash helpingfriendly to learn more. Osiris. Hey everybody, it's the Helping Friendly Podcast. This is episode 133 and we're talking with Tom. Hey Tom. What up? (laughs) Thanks for coming on. (laughs) That was great. Glad to be here. (laughs) Good color to the intro there. Um, I think think that you've been listening for a while, or at least for a little while. We appreciate you uh, coming on and sharing your opinions. Yeah, no problem. I've been listening to you guys for, I don't know, maybe six or seven months, maybe since right around the Baker's Dozen time. And nice. In all, in, in all honesty, like you guys have replaced anything that I used to listen to on the way to and from work in the morning. So uh, I'm, I'm actually listening to you guys in backwards order now. I'm back into 2016 right now. <laughs> That's terrifying. I hope you don't hear <laughs> many of my opinions. Um, I'm here with Matt, who has better opinions. Hey, Matt. Hey there, sports fans. <laughs> we're we're here to t- we're going to talk sports. No, we're we're going to talk fish, but we're also going to talk sports. So, um Tom, we're looking forward to to diving in with you. I guess before we start, I just want to say that um first of all, thanks for listening and you know, we're really excited to have Tom here and the first thing we want to say is that the Helping Friendly podcast is a proud part of the Osiris Podcast Network, which is a growing network of music and culture podcasts. And our vision is to connect music fans like you with more music, more commentary, more conversation. So check out OsirisPod.com for more. And um, we're partnering with Relics. And Relics.com can give you lots of news, conversation, and a lot of music information. So thank you to those guys. Um, Matt, have you used Cash or Trade recently? I have used it in terms of getting all of my notifications set up of listings because I got shit for tickets for this summer. Um, so I'm I've used it a lot in the past and hoping that it comes through for me again like it has uh, on on other shows. Yeah, it's come it comes through a lot. Um, Cash or Trade, as as many of our listeners know, they're disrupting the secondary ticket market, um, and they're partnering with us. They've been called the Airbnb of tickets. We've heard um, they're helping fans avoid scalping and and helping fans, you know, purchase tickets for face value. So we're um, we're happy to partner with them, and they're we're doing a special partnership with them where. Um, Osiris and, and HF pod listeners can get 25% off of their gold membership, um, which comes with the option of receiving push and text notifications every time a ticket is posted in case you get shitty tickets or no tickets like Matt, you can, um, you can go and, and find tickets. Um, you can reply immediately, etc. So, 
Um, if you want to try Cash or Trade Gold, go to cashortrade.org slash Osiris and add the coupon code Osiris when you check out. Um, some people have asked, Osiris is O-S-I-R-I-S. So if you've been wondering what it is, that's what it is. So we're excited to partner with them, but Tom, we're here to talk about your fish journey and um, appreciate you, you know, listening and supporting us. Um, and I know that you, for for a job, you work in radio. So does it feel weird to be interviewed or is this like kind of another day at work for you? Um, I'd say that there are elements of this that are very familiar to me. Just uh, the one, th- the biggest difference is that the two of you guys aren't like sitting right here in front of me. So I can't see your body language and you can't, or we can't like respond to each other's mm-hmm. sort of mm-hmm. gestures and body language. I think that that's a big thing. So I'm sort of just, I'm talking to my guitar that's right in front of me, <laughs> which is a little <laughs> different, but um, yeah, just as far as having a, a conversation, hopefully about something that we all love. I mean, I guess I talk about sport. If I were to rank like the top, I don't know, five or six things that I like that are my passions that I would like to talk about sports is in there, but at the moment, and it hasn't been this way my whole life at the moment, it's fish. Like if I could replace all the sports with fish, I mean, I'd be honestly, like I tweeted to you guys, I'd be the happiest guy in the world. That's awesome, man. Awesome. Well, you, you get to work in radio, but also talk about fish, which is like, we, we sort of talk about fish, but don't, you know, we pretend we work in radio. So you have the best of both <laughs> worlds. But um. so, Tom, um, you are on ESPN radio in Seattle. Is that correct? Yeah, it's called 710 ESPN Seattle. That's the name of the station. Awesome. Um, so how did I mean, just out of curiosity, because that seems like a pretty cool field to be to get into. How did you actually get into, um, you know, sports broadcasting? Um, well, back in like 2000, I'd say two, three and four, I wasn't really doing much of anything. I I had, I'd gone to school in Indiana, Indiana university, and I was in a lot of bands over the years. And at that point, I really thought I was going to have a career as a performing musician. Right. And, um, I wouldn't say we ever had any sort of major success. We used to do like mini tours around the Midwest. But after that ended, I really had no idea what I was doing. I was just sort of hanging around. I went back to live with my parents for a while. And while I was there, I started just listening to a lot of sports talk radio. There's guys at WFAN in New York and WEI up in Boston. That became like, a, like I said to you about listening to your podcast, it was like that with them back then. Every time I got in the car, that's what I had on. And at some point, I just said to myself, you know, I don't know if I could do this on air, but I could contribute to this in some significant way, maybe as a producer or something. And I ended up going to the Connecticut School of Broadcasting in 2005. And just, I was lucky because I was living in Connecticut then. And one of my instructors there happened to work as a program director at ESPN Radio. So I just sort of, after I got through with the course, I begged him for an interview and he gave it to me and he basically hired me. And I started off at the lowest possible level, cutting tape, cutting highlights um, and then I just kind of went up, 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 up to the point where in 2011, so I worked at ESPN, the headquarters in Connecticut for about five years from 06 to 11. Then in 2011 in April, 
I came out here and I've been producing and I've been on air for about the last six years uh, as a host. Our show is called Bob, Graz and Tom. It starts at noon every day. It's from noon to three Pacific. Uh, you can find it really anywhere online. You can listen to us, but uh, that's kind of it in a nutshell. Excellent. And so what is your, just out of curiosity, because since you're, you're not in your uh, kind of, you know, hometown market, what are your teams that you root for and how does it feel like to be reporting in another market's teams? Yeah, it's kind of strange. So I'd say just through the course of my life, my favorite baseball team has been the Red Sox, Boston Red Sox, um, football, New York Giants. Uh, very popular teams. Yeah. Well, I'm from there, yeah. Um, and I don't Says really follow the OSU pro basketball. fan. Yeah. Right. I don't really follow pro basketball that much. I, I'm kind of a Knicks fan. I'd say the Indiana Hoosiers. I'm a, real, I'm a really big college basketball fan. So Indiana and UConn I've been fans of. Uh, and we're actually getting and the Hartford Whalers when I was growing up, too. That's a different story. But we're actually getting a team here in Seattle pretty soon, next couple of years. So we're pretty excited about that. But those would be the main teams. I'd say... I became a Mariner fan since I've been out here. Seahawks to some extent too. I mean, what's good for them is good for us as far as ratings and interest in what we do. So I root for that, but my heart is still in other places. And we're all, um, we're all big 10 alums here, Indiana, Penn state, Ohio state, which is good. How about that? Jonathan's not here to tell us that sports are stupid, which is good because we have a lot of sports to talk about, but Tom, I guess going from that, how did you first get into fish? Tell us a little bit about that journey. Um, the first time I can remember hearing about fish was actually, it wasn't even that I heard them. I was in high school as a freshman in about 1993, 94. And I started noticing a lot of the kids from around the high school, like the older kids were wearing fish t-shirts. And I kept wondering my, to myself, like, what the hell is fish? Like, what is this thing that's so popular that I've never even heard of or seen? Like, what is that? Um, and because I hadn't actually heard it, but it was really popular, naturally, I developed a deep resentment of them before I ever even heard them. Um, and then I'd say about a year later, first time I heard of them or actually heard their music was I was in a car with my buddy. His name was John. It was in December. I remember because we were going to shop for Christmas presents. And he said to me, he said, don't judge this. I just want to play it for you. And I was like, okay. So he takes out a live one and he throws on chalk dust torture. So this is December 95, I guess. Um, And I heard it and I was just, I want to say blown away. I didn't really have that it moment right then, but I liked it enough where I knew that I didn't not like it. And I asked him to burn me a copy of it uh, to tape then, of course. And I listened to that a bunch. I didn't really get into the band, though, until probably, I'd say, midway through 96, just past the point where I would have gotten to go to the Clifford Ball. All my friends went to the Clifford Ball. I did not because I... I wasn't invested enough in the band where I was going to drive up the road to Plattsburgh and, you know, camp out for three days. Plus my parents probably wouldn't have let me anyway. Um, But I think that same friend loaned me a copy of a picture of Nectar, maybe a month or so after that. And I just remember this one time I was listening to Cavern, like the studio version. And something just hit me in that moment. I just said in that moment, like, I love this band. I don't know much beyond the couple of songs that I've heard, but I just knew like this band is for me. And so shortly after that, we all got tickets to go see them. Uh, fall 96, it was 10, 23, 96 at the Hartford civic center. And 
I mean, that was it. I, I, I don't think for the next year, maybe even two, I listened to much else outside of that. So for the between about 1996 and 99, I was just if you look at like a list of concerts that I've ever been to, it was just all fish. I really didn't even see anybody else. You know, leading up to to fish here, I mean, how much of a how much of a role did music play in your life? Were you like a a, a big music guy, and um, like what kind of you know music were you listening to at that point? Was fish a big departure for you? Yeah, that's a great question because I wanted to touch on that too. So I've I've been into music pretty hardcore ever since I was a little, little kid. I used to listen to all the records that my parents had. Uh, Paul McCartney and Wings happened to be my favorite band when I was a kid. I don't, I don't, I still love them, but I'm not really sure why that hooked me back then, but they did. Um, And then. I became a big fan of a lot of different types of music actually through Weird Al Yankovic, if if you kind of dig where I'm coming from. So he'd parody all this different stuff, you know, Michael Jackson and Talking Heads or the Police. Police police actually became my favorite band and in a way still are. Um, But I kind of got into different music through them. So I'd say from about, I'd say 1991 up until the time I started listening to Fish, my big bands were the Police, Queen, and Rush. Those were the real big ones. I, I was like a freak for all three nice. of those bands. Had all the albums, you know, had, I used to pull the liner notes out of the CD cases and read them over and over and over and over. Um, but I think what happened was Fish broke me out of that rut because, you know, that's only a couple of bands. You know, I listened to classic rock, radio, that type of thing. I was never into new, new music. Like I didn't get into Nirvana until about a year or so after he had died. The, the grunge thing never really did much for me. I, I like it enough, but it was never, I was never into anything when that thing was popular. So Fish was a good way for me to sort of get in touch with what was going on at that moment. So, so Tom, when was 10, 23, 96, your first show? Yes. Cool. So that was a, interesting. Bob Galati was on the, on the drums in the uh, second set. Did that do you, do you recall that at all? Or was that like a did that have any effect on you? Because that's kind of an interesting second set, um, given what was going on at the time in, in fall ninety six, where they were trying to like find their way in a lot of ways. I remember them setting up the the little drum set at the intermission and people were kind of just they weren't really cheering so much as they were kind of looking on with curiosity like what the heck is going on here? But um, mm-hmm. I, I've gone back and listened to that show, that set plenty of times. And I think they picked the right songs for him to do with them. Yeah, that's interesting. So so what was what was your fish journey like sort of from 96 to, to you know, the, the current era? And, and I guess I should preface that by saying that part of what we were talking about as a theme was like rediscovering fish, right? You You were into it and then you fell out of it and then you got back into it, which is a big, I think, uh, theme for a lot of people, you know, a lot of people come in and, and go back out or, or don't discover for a while or whatever. But what was your experience kind of, uh, following them from the 96 era to now? Yeah, I think the biggest thing was that, uh, I'm a musician and you know, I got into them when I was 16. So I'm, I'm a bass player and guitar player. And, I think the biggest thing is that listening to their music made me a better musician because it challenged me to play harder stuff. The the police and queen and rush that I was listening to before that stuff was so hard for me when I first picked up a guitar that I couldn't play it. So fish as after I had started to become a little bit better, they made me better because I could understand it a little bit better. And then 
you know, I mean, some stuff is more challenging than others. When their stuff ranges, there's a big spectrum of difficulty. But um, I'd say playing their music and learning it was the biggest thing. Also, when I got to Indiana to go to school, every single person I knew there that was a friend of mine was into fish. It was just like the thing. You couldn't get away from it. If you were in our group of friends and you didn't like fish, you probably weren't going to want to hang around with us. Um, we were in the Midwest, by the way, was a great, great place to be a fish fan right in Bloomington because you got places like Alpine Valley, Chicago, Deer Creek, Cincinnati, Champaign, Cleveland, Dayton, um, even Detroit's not that far away. So all these different venues, depending on where they were on a given tour, you could go to like two or three, maybe even four in some cases. Columbus was another one. Um, so we were, especially in the summertime and the fall, we were always on the road seeing this band. I was in a band that I was in a couple of bands, but one of them played a lot of covers of fish. That was a big thing too. So we were like the Bloomington, Indiana's little version of fish. Anybody who liked fish in that college town would come to see us because we were going to be like the outlet that provided that for the town. Nice. And that went on. Yeah. And that went on for a couple of years. Um, and then I think the thing that happened was, as a young kid, if you're a real curious musician, naturally what you're going to do is you're going to go and you're going to explore other kinds of music. And usually it's one band leads you to the next. And I think what happened with Fish is that it opened my mind to so much other music, like jazz in particular, that I ended up just sort of going down that path. And at a certain point, I left Fish behind. And I think the, I mean, most times when you go on to... Let me back up. How do I say that? I think most times you just accumulate more things that you listen to. You don't necessarily leave things behind. In this case, what happened was around 99, when I, when I was seeing them, I was noticing that they weren't as tight. And some of the songs mm. that they were writing seemed to be a lot simpler. Like I started hearing things like Farmhouse and even like First Tube or Sand or Jaboo, songs I love now. They seem too simple for fish. Like I got into them because of the prog aspect, you know, it's ice, fluffhead, YEM, all that stuff was what really gripped me. I didn't really listen to them back then for the jamming per se. I listened to them, I think, only for the jamming now. <laughs> but back then it was a little bit different. And so when they went away from the prog thing, I was a little bit miffed at that. I was I was kind of like, all right, if that's the direction this band is going. I'm not really so sure I want to hang around for this. Um, mm. And I remember I saw the very last show I saw in the 1.0 was, again, it was Hartford Civic Center, as it turns out. It was 12 12 It was the one where they had that big monster, like 30-minute drown to open the second set, which is awesome. But I remember I came away from that show thinking, like, eh, I'm not really sure if, if this is for me anymore. Like, I might just not do this anymore. And I didn't. Um, and then a year later, they went on the hiatus. And it was when they went on the hiatus, I remember just hearing about it secondhand. It was like, all right, you know, that that's fine, I guess. Then they when they came back in uh, 02, I remember seeing them on like Saturday Night Live, maybe. And I forget what they play, but I remember thinking, man, I, I'm so removed from this now. Like, I just don't want anything to do with this. And when they broke up in 04, I just figured like, okay, say la vie. Like, good for you guys. You had a great run. But it's got nothing to do with me anymore. <laughs> so, so you didn't see him at all 99 through 2.0? Uh, 
Uh, to, well, my last one was 12, 12, 99. So from okay. two, from basically from that day up through 2014, I didn't see him at all. I didn't know oh, wow. where they were on tour. I wasn't aware, you know, of any dates that were coming nearby me. Some of my friends were still into him, but again, you're that age. People are coming and going all the time. Your connections aren't the same. And I had moved back to Connecticut. It just wasn't. And again, like I said, I was getting into sports radio and sports at that time more. So that's kind of where my focus was. Okay. So then even in 3.0, as they come back and there was a lot of fanfare for the first couple of years, you didn't get into it. Um, what happened in 2014 that got you back in the fold? Yeah. Well, when they came back in 2009, um, I, again, I wasn't really aware of it. I, I think I just sort of heard through the grapevine. I was working so much. I really didn't have time to pay attention to like anything going on outside of that. I was working a lot of overnights. Um, I was kind of wrapped up in that. So I knew that they were coming uh, on occasion, I guess maybe I had heard something, but I just didn't have any interest in going to see it. And then in 2014, by this time I'm out in Seattle, uh, my buddy who had just moved in with me actually told me he was a fish fan. I was like, Oh, that's cool, man. Like, you know, I used to listen to them a lot and he's like, yeah, uh, you should get tickets to the key arena show, which is on October 18th. And I thought, you know what? It's a Saturday night. What the heck? Let's just go. It's not far from me. It was right around the corner from where I lived then. And really from the first note of the show, which wasn't a very good show, by the way, by fish standards, it wasn't even that great. Um, for the first note of the show, I was like, wow, this is so familiar and just so wonderful. How did I let this slip away? And I think part of that just has to do with maturing. I had experienced a lot of other things, you know, between age 20 and 35. Maybe I was just ready for it. But from, and it didn't happen immediately that I got back into them, but I was, my ears were open to them again. Um, and maybe if, within a few months, I just, I started listening to the studio albums again. I'm not sure why I went with, maybe I wasn't even aware of Fish Tracks or Fish.in or anything. I just started with the studio albums and I just, I guess over the span of two or three months, I noticed that I hadn't listened to anything but that. And I was hooked again. And that was basically it. So my next show after that was New Year's 2015 at the Garden. I, I flew back to visit my parents for Christmas and then shot down to MSG. And I've been seeing them every possible chance I get ever since. So, Tom, what what I mean, what do you think it was that like, so you went back to that show and you were like, yeah, let's do it. What do you think... Um Rehooked you because it obviously wasn't the prog rock stuff that had gotten you um, interested event initially, right? I think part of it might have been nostalgia because when I saw them on stage, it just reminded me of a lot of I don't know friends from the past and places that I had been. I think something just happened where I felt the connection was something that was uniquely me. Like I'm alone out here in Seattle, right? I moved out here sight unseen without anybody else. And I feel like when I started listening to them again, it like filled me with, I don't know, strength or something like, man, this is my thing. Nobody else out here that I know is really into this band and it's just my thing. And it made me feel really good about that. And it gave me this new lens to look at them through. Um, and going back to the studio albums, it just made me sort of reappreciate 
what this band was all about. And I started going on Fishnet and looking at the message boards and set lists. Like, I guess when it got to around summer 2015, I was following the set lists every night and trying to figure out, okay, how many of these songs do I know? Which ones do I need to learn? You know, so that when I go see them, I'll know what they are. It was kind of that long drawn out process over the span of maybe six or seven months and then by the time that New Year's run came around, I mean, I was champing at the bit. I was just ready to go at that point. Yeah, it's an interesting point you make about being out in the Pacific Northwest because, I mean, maybe you can set us straight on this. The The impression that I get is that they there's not a huge fish following out there, at least these days. Um, I think the impression that I've gotten is that like when they play the Gorge and stuff, it's a lot of people traveling out there. Um, to, to see them as opposed to, you know, where you came from in the, in the Northeast, New England, which is like fish central and, and, you know, people are everywhere. I mean, has that, has that been your experience? Yeah. I think when I got to the key arena for that show in 2014, I was sitting in like kind of a mezzanine level, right, right between one hundreds and two hundreds, like straight back from the stage. And I remember looking down at the floor and thinking to myself, every fish fan that's in the Pacific Northwest is here right now. Like this is it. <laughs> um, I mean, go, I've been to the gorge. I, I saw them there twice in 2016 when they came. I think that, yeah, the, the number of fans that are out here is definitely less. I don't know why that is. It could just have to do with the fact that they, they never made this a consistent stop on any tour other than the gorge. And even if you live in Seattle, a densely populated area, it's tough to get out there. Like they don't often come to the city proper. So you got to be pretty dedicated to get there. I personally don't, let's see, how many people do I actually know here that are fish fans? Maybe two, um, you know, and like, I'm not the big, I'm, count them on one hand. Yeah. Like I'm not the most social guy in the world, so I'm not meeting you know, I'm not going out all the time and talking to that many people, but I think it's really just two or three that I know other than myself. So, you know, and people tease me about it at work because they don't get it at all, but I don't care. It's because it's just, it's something that's mine. And if that's a problem for someone, they can deal with it. So, so Tom, what do you, before we get into this show that you chose, which we're going to play one set of, um, you work in sports radio. You've been working in sports radio for a while. Before we started, we talked about a little bit about sports and fish. I think there's a ton of crossover and a ton of, you know, obviously like a big gap too. But do you see a lot of similarities between the people you hear from in sports radio and fish fans? I mean, is there a similarity between rabid music fans and rabid sports fans or are they different in some way? What's your take on that? Um do you guys remember the the interview that Trey did? I forget when it's from, but where he called the fans persnickety. I forget what it's from. I think he said that. <laughs> He's probably said that a couple times. Well, right, but there, I think there's one famous <laughs> clip where he it may have been like that CBS This Morning interview from a while back. But he called, I think that sports fans are also persnickety. But the one difference is that sports fans, when you're dealing with sports, you're dealing with wins and losses. Like straight up, you either did well or you lost, right? You want to, you lost. So people get really, really mad and they get mad at teams and individual players and they want to complain about it. I mean, what I do basically is criticism on the air. It's what we do. We, we, we read and we react or we watch and we react just to what we saw. And a lot of the time it's negative. I, that's actually one area of the business that I don't like. I'm really good at being negative and that's not a good thing for me to have to be negative all the time. Um, whereas with fish... I think most of the time we're celebrating something. When you walk out of a fish show, you don't see anybody hanging their head. 
you see people high-fiving and smiling and doing whatever. And so I think you couldn't do what I do for fish in terms of like, okay, let's analyze and break this down. Was this good? Was this bad? Was this a mistake? I don't think that it's really that. But as far as the level of dedication to something, yeah, I mean, people are as dedicated to fish as they are to sports teams. And, and you follow it in the same way, right? When they're on tour, you're looking at, okay, well, what song haven't they played yet? They've done this a number of times. This version was better than that version. Um, I think that there's that similarity, like in the way we follow it, but just in general, I think the following the band or the discussion surrounding the band is a lot more joyous. Are you guys um, f- familiar with the piece that David Steinberg wrote years ago? Um, I think it's called Fish Shows Are Like Baseball Games. <laughs> yeah. Did you guys ever read that? Yeah, um, yeah. T- t- Tom, are you familiar um, with that? I don't know that I knew that it was him that wrote it, but maybe that, that does sound familiar. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the, the basic premise being that, you know, a fish concert and I, and I believe this was actually based on a piece, a similar piece that was written about the Grateful Dead, um, thinking that, you know, a fish concert is more like a baseball game than it is a concert of any other band where, you know, you're, you're going and you're seeing a performance that they've put together and that has a start and an end and, and kind of a, an arc to the middle of it. But, you know, really when we go to a fish show we're, we know who the players are, we know what the premise is, we know, you know, the basics of how it's going to be played, but nobody, including the players knows what's going to happen and everybody is hoping for a win. Right. And sometimes they win and sometimes they lose. And the fact that they lose sometimes makes the fact that, you know, when they win so much more um, joyous. <laughs> and I've, I've always used that as a, um, a metaphor for people that don't get the band or ask me why I go see them so many times. I'll be like, you know, why do you, why do you see fish, you know, 15 times in a year? And I'm like, well, if I told you that I went to see, you know, 15, you know, Phillies games in a year, um, you wouldn't bat an eyelash. Right. right. Because, you know, it's different every time. Right. And that's, it's the same kind of experience. Um, and I think I, the reason I brought that up is because what you just said about the fans is that, you know, the fans don't just go to be entertained. They go. And when it's not a great night, they go like Trey has, you know, said in some of those interviews they get online we talk about it we kind of nitpick what's happened um not because we hate the band or because we're down on them or anything but because we really want them to win and we're that invested in them and i think that's uh you know there's so many you know sports analogies but that's that's kind of the at the the core of it for yeah me I, I think that's an excellent point that's a great way to put it i mean the, the difference though as you're following it is that you know, when you're a sports fan, if your team's not doing well, we'll say if it's an off year, you're calling for the GM to be fired or players to be traded. Like, I don't ever remember anybody <laughs> saying like, you know what they got to do is get rid of that Paige McConnell because he's a bum. You know, he, yeah. he can't play anymore. <laughs> we got to get somebody else in on piano. They, like, it, it never gets to that level with fish. Well, also, like, there's no objectivity in terms of wins and losses, right? Like, what one person considers a loss, many people consider a win, right? There's right. <laughs> like maybe if there were no, if there were no, like if it's a zero, zero game in baseball, which obviously rarely happens anymore, but we'll just pretend that there is, you could be like, well, that was an amazing game. The pitching was awesome. And you know, the hitting was well defended, <laughs> right? <laughs> and the, the other side, you know, might have a similar perspective, but that's the, to me, the difference is there's no objective criteria that says whether we're right or wrong about all our stupid opinions. You know, um, 
Whereas in sports, it's like it's it's a little bit more obvious. Like I'm a Tigers fan. The Tigers are terrible. Like I can't. I could argue that the Tigers are good, <laughs> but it's it's not it's not possible because like the statistics say otherwise, right? Uh, sometimes you come in the day after a loss. Like I'll go into work and we'll all just kind of be looking at each other like. All right. Well, like after a Seahawks loss, we'll say, all right, well, that sucked. What do we say about it? There's nothing really to debate. Like the best thing about sports talk radio, I think, is the debate between two or three people. And you always have that after a fish concert, always, even after a great show or a bad show. Like you can always debate, you know, well, what's the yeah. best? This worked and I don't remember that, et cetera. But you come in after your team loses. Great. Oh, great. What are we going to talk about all week? Tom, we were. Uh, emailing and and tweeting or whatever, but um, you mentioned this this set word that we're about to hear, which is from eleven twenty six ninety seven, the second set. Um, we're always, or at least I personally am always willing and able to go back to fall ninety seven. But why'd you pick this set? Well, but you know what? You should have seen me when you guys asked me that. Like, I gave this a lot of thought, like way too much thought. Actually, <laughs> I was going through like I'm like wait. You know, they probably talked, uh, you know, 1997 to death. Maybe I should go somewhere else. And then I was like, just fucking, you know, play this one set. It's fine. I'm not really sure why. I went to the show, A. I saw four shows on the Fall 97 tour, uh, all of which were great. I saw the Nutter Center. I saw Champagne. I saw Worcester Night number one and this one. And this one is the one, at least of those four, certainly of the tour, that it doesn't get looked at that much. And I don't, I don't know that it's the set that I think is necessarily the greatest. It's not that, but for whatever reason, I know that a lot of people are not fans of character zero and it's not my favorite song either, but this character zero that opens the second set, I think that first of all, it goes on for like 20 minutes and that may scare some people, but when you hear it, and you listen to like the type of jam that it is, I think it really sticks out as something that they weren't doing a lot of then. They really didn't do again until like 2003. It's just a straight um, Fishman sits on the same beat for like 20 minutes. Trey is just letting it all hang out. It's dirty. Um, and I feel like by the time it's over, by the time they go into 2001, you feel like you've woken up from a dream. Yeah. And well, to, to add on what, you know, what you were saying there and, and bring it back to the sports metaphor, you know, that um, character zero becomes so great because, you know, they line up for that play, which everybody knows what's going to happen. OK, here's a quick five minute thing. And, and, you know, I like it or don't like it or I'm sick of it because I see so many shows. And then they do that and it becomes all that more uh, magical because it's a song that they don't usually take out. You know, it's like a trick play in football or something like that. Like, you know, you, you turn a run of the mill field goal or a punt into a into a trick play uh, where they, they get a first down and it's like, wow, that was amazing. That was like the best, you know, punt play I've seen in a long time just because it's it's so different and it's uh, it's so outside the box. Yeah, I think that also, I mean, Character Zero back then, I don't think was looked at the same way it is now. Now when you get that, some people think, all right, if it's the encore, we're leaving earlier or maybe I'll hit the bathroom. I actually happen to like the song. But back then, the song yeah. was relatively new. I don't even know if they played it before Billy Breeze came out. Maybe they did. But at that point, it's really just a year old and it's just kind of a rocking tune. Um, so the idea that they went off on a 20 minute bender on it didn't seem strange then. Cause we thought, all right, well maybe they'll just do that often. And as it turns out, they really didn't. 
Yeah, there weren't a lot of them that that went this far. Well, let's let's um, get into this set. What do you guys think? Should we do it? Yeah, let's listen to some right, tunes. Let's, Tom, thanks for choosing eleven twenty six ninety seven set two, and let's let people listen to it and see if they think it's amazing like we did. What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts.
All right, so that was set two from November 26, 1997. Started out with that amazing, long, jammed-out character Zero, straight into 2001, uh, straight into Cities, straight into Yamar, uh, into Punch You in the Eye, into Prince Caspian, and then wrapped it up with Poor Heart into Tweezer Reprise. So, uh, Tom, you're right, that's a... Uh, pretty incredible set. Um, before we kind of dive into the play-by-play, um, RJ, any other kind of you know general thoughts about the about the set as a whole? Well, I mean, we we went back to this set um, at, sort of in the middle and maybe in a little bit of an overlooked part of Fall '97, which, in my opinion, you know, is a tour with which Fish can do no wrong. Like every set's great, every show is good. Um, this is sort of in the middle, right? There's Dayton at the beginning, or sorry, Denver at the beginning, and then there's the the early December shows, and there's the Worcester stuff at the end of November. But this is sort of in the in the middle, and I think this might get overlooked a little bit. But I was glad to go back to this set too, especially because it was opening with a really long character zero, which is just such a great rarity for me, or maybe for the <laughs> world. But I, I really enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah, and I'm, I'm guessing looking at the date and the day of the week, this was probably the night before Thanksgiving, which is, I'm guessing, possibly why you were there, Tom, maybe uh, headed home for, for the weekend? Yeah, so I really, really lucked out two years in a row. What happened was, like I said, I, li- I grew up in Connecticut, but I went to school in Indiana. And so part of that tour, the early part, I caught in Champaign, Illinois. And then when I went home for Thanksgiving, both in 97 and 98, uh, they were, that's where they were. They were in Hartford and they went to Worcester. So I caught this show, then had Thanksgiving and then Friday went up to Worcester and I did that both years. I think actually in 98 though, they didn't come to the civic center. They went to the New Haven Coliseum earlier that week, um, which I missed, but, but both times, that's why I happened to be there. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. I benefited from that once I got to see them at the spectrum on the, uh, the Turkey anniversary run in 2003, which, uh, oh, yeah. Unfortunately, one of the weirdest shows that I've ever seen, but loved being able to see them on a on a short break home from school. So, Tom, the the character Zero here, I mean, in my opinion, having seen, I don't know, six or eight shows in Fall 97, I think this like really, really lived up to the, the hype of Fall 97. But what what's your what's your uh, memory of, of going into the show and, and why did you choose the second set instead of the first set, which was um also, uh, you know, open with a tweezer, which everyone will will ask you about. Why didn't you choose the set with the tweezer, bro? But also, <laughs> why? <laughs> what What do you remember about the character Zero? Two part question. Yeah. Um, first of all, I love the first set as well. I listened to. I probably listened to the first set of this show as much as I listened to the second set. I think that when you go to a show, and maybe this has changed over the years or maybe just I've changed. Like back in the day, I used to chase songs, songs that I hadn't seen yet. Cause at this point I had only seen like four shows before or maybe three. Um, but when you go to a, a show, you want to, there's certain songs maybe you want to see, maybe you want to see a big jam. Maybe you want to see them do something just really crazy, some kind of stunt that you haven't seen before. But I think what this show taught me back then and what the second set of the show taught me was that, it's possible for them to take five or six random songs, six or seven, and just completely make them flow together. I feel like maybe more than any other show I've seen, this set just flows beautifully stylistically and in terms of segues 
from uh, one song to the other. So the 20 minute character zero, they're just rocking out. I mean, it, this song sounds like it's coming out of hell. Like they're playing it in hell. Right. <laughs> and then by the end of it, you guys just effects galore. It's crazy. And then it sort of dies down and it's just the, uh, perfect perfect time fishman switches the drum beat from that in the 2001 beat and the crowd knows it immediately you can hear them they just they know it and then, look any 1997 2001 is a great one this might not be the best one but you know they're all fine or they're not fine they're all really good uh and i and i be i think being at the show Nobody's ever going to complain about a 2001 because it's just, it's a great sort of spectacle to be a part of. If I ever bring somebody to a show who's never seen Fish before, I always hope they play 2001 because that just blows people away. Um, and then into Cities, I'd say 1997, 98 was when Cities was kind of, it was like in its funk heyday. I'm not really sure that they've ever played that song better than they did back then. It wasn't the longest one in the world, but. I thought it really worked. Then going into your Mar, that's your first real stylistic change. And again, it flowed right into it. They didn't stop at all. I thought that worked. Then Punch You in the Eye, which I think back then was my favorite fish song, just because mm -hmm. it offers a little bit of everything they do. You've got mm -hmm. uh, the technical prowess from, from really all four guys in the band. Plus, you know, there's the, the, audience chant etc and it, they put it in a really weird spot in the set usually that opens a set or it's a first set or something like that but here it is they're throwing it at you in the second set i thought that worked and then kind of like i said before with where the character zero ends how you feel like you're awakening from a dream once the you know how they end punch you in the eye and it's it's that sort of chaotic ending where they're not really together and then they hit that final you know whatever once that stops and you hear the trickle of Trey playing the beginning of Caspian. It's kind of that same sensation of like, Oh yeah. Okay. Mm. Like I'm waking up now. Like the past hour has been really just focused. It feels like a set of different dreams that you've had. Like they don't have anything to do with one another, but they're all, they, but they seem connected because of the way they pulled this off. And it's actually a nice Caspian. Caspian's another song that I like other people don't find, but they do a really nice job jamming it out. I mean, in, in 97, they did a nice job with pretty much everything. Um, the poor heart, I could have done without that. They could have put something else or just kept going on Caspian for all I cared. And then you end it with, you end it with Tweezer reprise. Who's going to complain there. I just thought it was a really complete sounding set with really no down points. Yeah. I think everything that you say that, you know, as we're, you were describing it again, after I listened to it again earlier today, um, each of the segments of it, you know, each of the songs is very, very good. Um, but you put the whole thing together and it's really great. Like I, I was listening to the character zero and I was surprised cause I hadn't listened to it, uh, in a little while that I, I remembered building it up in my mind as this really big character zero, maybe just cause of the length, but it doesn't do a whole lot for the first like 13 to 15 minutes. It really is just kind of grooving on the, um, the character zero, um, you know, uh, riffs, um, and then it kind of changes a little bit for the you know the last five to six minutes uh, where Mike kind of gets away from playing the um, the regular chord progression and into some some different things. Um, but it's once you pair it together with the segue into two thousand one and the whole two thousand one, and then that segue into cities and then into Yamar, that entire sequence put together is a really really nice 
segment of music. Um, the only thing I would fault it for, like you were kind of saying, is maybe a couple of poor choices in terms of um, song selection in like the back half. Like P- Punch You in the Eye never feels right to me unless it's a set opener. Um, it's so it was a little weird that they kind of killed some of the momentum with that, especially cause it was a little flubby. Um, and then poor heart that late in the game, um, you know, it's, it's kind of a shame, but then when you wrap it up with tweet, tweet prize, it's, uh, you know, I mean, like you said, who's going to argue with, uh, with that as the set closer. I think what happened with poor heart too is, and it says this in the notes and I don't, I didn't recognize it at the time, but it's true when you go back and listen, they started off with Rocky top, which by the way, isn't really that much better of a song choice in that spot. It makes no sense, but I think they just got a little confused there for a second <laughs> and they just were like, all right, we'll just do poor heart, poor heart and, you know, hope for the best. Yeah. You know, that's a good point actually, because if they were going to do Rocky top, that tells me they were probably trying to close the set with it. Yeah. And then, and then when they wound up with poor heart, they were like, uh, we got to do something else to wrap this up because, uh, that's not really a good set closer. And then in the, in the encore, and I know we didn't listen to that, but, uh, you know, a cavern, we've all seen that song a million times. I've always, I will know, I will believe this till the day I die. The studio version of that song is the best version they've ever done of cavern. It just sounds better. A, but on this version you get, um, the alternate turn the blade back on the bitch lyrics because oh, yeah. Trey yeah. screwed up the lyrics and he didn't know where to go and they were kind of lost. So he just threw that in there. It's like, Oh, okay. That's a nice little bonus. Right. <laughs> so, so Tom, sorry. So guys, I just want to go back to the character zero because Tom, what, what, how, how important do you think this, this character zero gem is? Cause this is like, this is sort of the anchor of this, and I will start that by saying that I think this was like the one of the archetypal jams of Fall 97 in terms of being just aggressive, dirty rock rock and roll without any like you know there was no funk, there was no bliss, but there was this was a rock jam to me. But I wanna I just wanna go back and spend a couple more minutes like what 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 does this jam mean to you now going back? Well, that's funny you, you said archetypal 97 jams, because when I think of 97, the band is still really tight at that point, and I think of more use of space, things like Ghost mm-hmm. and some of the tweezers. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a really messy jam that, I like I said before, it feels more like a 99 or an 03 type jam to me. Um, now... It, I mean, Fishman's just sort of sitting in a groove, not a funk groove, like you said, but it's just like, and I disagree a little bit. I think the first 15 minutes, Trey's doing their like stuff there, like with his harmonizer. And there's, I don't know, there's a, there's a, a, I guess like a frenetic pace to it that mm-hmm. I don't, I don't really find at, maybe as I, if I go back and I listen to other 97 shows now, maybe I'll be like, oh yeah, those guys were right. Like it's here and it's here and it's here. But, I always thought that this jam stood out as something else than what they were doing in 97. I mean, you're right. It's, it's different in that it's got that drone sort of feel, which they were doing obviously a lot more in 97 than they had in 96 or 95. Mm-hmm. But it just, it doesn't lock in with the cow funk theme, I guess is what I'm trying to say. It's, it's something other than that. Yeah. I, f- I feel like they did this kind of thing a couple different times. Um, 
the um, the the Tweezabella from from December six comes to mind, where mm. it gets into very kind of like sheets of sound territory. Um, I might be mixing up my timelines, but I feel like this is the tour where Trey's um, listening to My Bloody Valentine was really starting to influence mm-hmm. him. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm just saying that because I've been listening to that album a lot recently. But, I believe um, you. I mean, I believe you. You know what I mean? Like where he's – where we you, yeah. you pass that point around 13 to 15 minutes in where he's he's – sort of adding those layers of, um, you know, octave divided stuff and, and letting the delay sort of let some of those things, um, some of the sounds he's making hang out a little bit more instead of playing those cutting rock leads, um, that he, you know, he did that. And I think maybe RJ, this is what, that's what you were saying. Like one of the types of jams that they did 97, it's not the the most frequent one with the funk, but it was something that seemed to, to, to pop up here and there. Yeah, exactly. I mean like the Denver ghost or, or, I mean, I don't even know. I, I can't go through them all. But, you know, there's the Denver Ghost, which is the bliss, and there's millions of funk jams. And this was just, I don't know, I guess what you guys were both describing as sort of Trey just kind of pushing one mode or, or playing with one thing was, like, so overwhelmingly raging to me when I when I went back to it, which was awesome. I think that's, like, it's so cool that he, that, I don't know. Yeah, it was almost it, like, it, it, yeah, it was, sorry to interrupt. It was almost like yeah. they were, um, you know, they get 10 minutes in and they've done this one thing for a while. And it's like Trey had some kind of agenda on his mind. Like, no, I'm going to keep going. And I'm like, yeah. just I'm, for <laughs> yeah. come hell or high water, we're going to stick with this. And I'm just going to keep throwing shit at it, you know, one thing after another. And then by the time, I, there's one moment with the, I don't know where, which version you guys aired, but if you go to fish.in and you play that version of it, right at the one minute to go mark, so like with about a minute to go, he hits an effect. I don't know what you would even call it. If it's like a, a repeater or something where it just goes, and like the audience senses to respond to it. It's just like, whoa, we are in total fucking <laughs> chaos right now. Like this is as dirty as I've seen them in a while. So it, it's that type of thing. They just stuck with it and stuck with it and stuck with it until they just couldn't do anything with it anymore. And really, I don't think they have since with that song. That's a good point. I don't think they have either. And I mean, I guess, Tom, now that you just to go back to the original kind of conversation about rediscovering fish, uh, do you feel like this is is this nostalgia for you in terms of going back and listening to a show like this? Or do you feel like they're close to matching that? Or I don't know. How do you feel about it? Not not in terms of like ranking or whatever, but just in terms of how you experience the music. This show or, or or the shows now? Um, I guess this show compared to what you see now or what okay. you experience now. Um, well, first of all, I don't really look, I said it was nostalgia and it, it was in 2014. It's not anymore. Like when I go back and I listen to any of these shows, whether I attended them or not, um, it's sheer musical exploration. It's, it's a journey that that's what it is. Mm-hmm. It was then and it, mm-hmm. and it is again. As far as comparing 97 to say, you know, 2017 or any, any of the recent years, um, saying this to a non-Fish fan wouldn't make any sense, but I feel like they're a different band. And I think most Fish fans would agree with me. Mm-hmm. Like they, they, don't, they don't do jams like that anymore. They sit on grooves for a while, but at least at the moment, it's really more about the bliss jams. 
Um, and it seems like they're trying to reach people. Like they're trying to go different places. Like that jam just droned on forever. And I know that they still do that on occasion, but it seems like the goals are just different. I mean, Tom, I think you're, um, the different band thing is really interesting to me because every time I go back to an older show, which is every day, <laughs> I, I'm reminded of like, to me, how much like better musicians they are now. Like they were, they were very, I go to a lot of like 92, 93 shows these days, you know, and like the technical prowess is there, but they're, they're very like precise about their thing, you know? Whereas like now you go to a show and you, you're not sure what the like influence is going to be or what it's going to sound like, but, but it's, it's going to be really good. Um, and this, I feel like 97 was right in the middle. It was like, they were, they were so good at doing what they did, you know, every night and they would come out. There was not really a question in this tour, at least about whether the show you were going to was going to be awesome or not. It was going to be awesome, but it might be a little bit more like narrowly focused than what you would, what you would hear now. I guess that's my take. I, I really love going back to these shows, but I'm reminded why I love the current shows I go to. Cause they're, they're just, they have 20 years more experience. So it's just, it's like different musicianship, but some of this, like character zero, that was just balls to the wall, like fucking rock star shit, which I love, but I just, I feel like they have a broader range now. That's what I keep being reminded of. Matt, is that, is that wrong or, or inappropriate? Well, it's it's not wrong if that's how you feel. I mean, you, you, you feel that way. <laughs> you can't, nobody can ever tell you that you don't have an What opinion. do you think, Matt? Um, <laughs> no, so I that's interesting because I've been thinking about this a lot recently, and I was actually thinking about it today. I was um, listening to uh, that wonderful um, the podcast that Fishman just did, uh, The Drummer's Resource, and he was talking mm-hmm. about this a little bit because I come back to this question in my mind sometimes, um, which is like, you know, it's easy to see like in the eighties why they would be working and in the early nineties, why they would be working to, you know, get to bigger venues and why once they got to the arena level by the mid to late nineties, how they would kind of strive for dominance and changing their sound and breaking ground. Um, and, and the question comes up sometimes like, you know, why, what do they have to work for today? You know what I mean? Like why, what Mm -hmm. do they want to get out of stepping on stage every day? Um, and you hope, I mean, not to, to, to be negative, but you hope that the reason isn't just a paycheck. Um, I think that's, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. sometimes I feel like sometimes that's the 800 pound gorilla in the room. You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. um, that, that you just want to hope that they're not just trying to do this to, to make money and that there still is some sort of drive. But as you know, four guys in their, in their fifties who are bona fide legendary rock stars, you know, what do you have to work for? And I think that, you know, some of it comes down to what they've said repeatedly, which is that they really just love being together and they love playing together. Um, and that's been, you know, kind of hammered home. And I, and I truly believe it when they say that. Um, but in terms of the intention on stage, I, I feel like, man, maybe this is a different flavor of what you're saying, RJ, is like, instead of saying like, well, we need to try to accomplish something every night, it's nice to just go out there and say, we've accomplished it and we know how to do it in almost sort of like in a Jedi master way. Like, let's just exercise it. You know, like we know how to surrender ourselves and how to create a moment and a vibe and an experience for everybody. And so we can do that. And I, and some people beat them up 
for that sometimes and say, well, you know, they're not swinging for the fences or they're not hungry or something like that. And, and, you know, that's fair, but they're also not, you know, starving artists in their twenties anymore. I mean, they're, they're, they're different people yeah. and the intentions going to be different. So, you know, to, to kind of bring it back to the question, if you look at 97 versus, you know, 2017 and, you know, probably what we're going to see in 2018, um, it, it's, I, I agree with you that I feel like they're probably a lot more comfortable in their skin now, you know, maybe they're not as cocky as they used to be. Um, mm. You know, maybe there's there's not like a swagger, but that's OK, because, you know, cocky is cool for a certain period of your life. And and then it only gets you so far. Uh, and it's and it's cool to just, you know, be able to step out and and just do something. I'll draw one more um, kind of comparison that I was actually one of the, the other reasons I was thinking about this question recently um was, you know, I'm a, I'm a big Bruce Springsteen fan and thinking about, you know, the progression of his career, um, you know, shout out to, to Stephen Hyden, who just did his amazing, amazing series on Springsteen. And he kind of stopped at the end of the nineties, um, covering, you know, what mm-hmm. Springsteen's career was like, but I see, you know, where a lot of people say, well, now he's hit this legacy status and he just puts out an album every couple of years and tours. At the same time, for a lot of fans, the experience live has been that he's been doing some of the best shows ever. Not because it's, you know, 1980 and he's going out and he's trying to prove something and, you know, capture an audience and become this huge rock star and, and write life-changing music, but because he knows how to exercise it now. He knows the power that he wields and that he can step step out on stage and play for four hours. And at the end of it, leave the audience feeling energized and changed and good about the world. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, there's something to be said for these, you know, aging rock stars who know how to just go out there and do what they do best. Um, and, mm-hmm. and, and I love it. I think we're all, you know, we're all benefiting from it. I can, I think those are all excellent excellent points i mean i love whichever one of you said the thing about the jedi master uh i think that's perfect because they it, what they don't need to be doing anymore is you know doing a bunch of backflips on stage and kind of showing off the way they did when they were writing things like oh I, you know any of the early 90s or late 80s so they don't need to do that anymore they can kind of take their time more and stop worrying about impressing everybody they've already made it obviously mm-hmm. now they're just kind of the, the only reason really to be in fish now for the four of them as far as like communicating a message to their audience it's just kind of to share with the audience where they are musically that like where their ears are the type of stuff that they're listening to and then communicate it to us so, Tom, I mean, going back to this, is there anything anything else that you, I don't know, discovered, rediscovered, thought about? This is about the only thing, I think, in my life that I've ever been this into and then forgot about and then came back to. I mean, everything else has, has either stayed with me. I mean, I'll, I'll give just a quick funny aside. In about 2006... 2005 and 2006, this is right after Fish had really mm-hmm. broken up. Um, I was in this band in Connecticut with a couple of guys, a piano player and a guitar player, who could really play. I mean, they were good. They And the two of those guys were really into Fish. And at that point, my Fish fandom was like at a nadir. I just did not 
want to have anything to do with it. They'd always be like, Hey, can we cover lizards or whatever? I'd be like, dude, don't you ever like get beyond this band? Like I loved them too, but you know, this is like overkill. All you, all you want to do, all you know is fish. Come on. I would say that if I had the same opportunity to be in that band now, I'd be like, okay, let's just cover them all. You know, let's just do it. Um, <laughs> it it's just kind of one of those things. So I think I'm still surprised myself that, I'm as into them at this point. But I think that there's a lot of people who are like me in this respect, because remember when they went away in 2004, I won't say there was a backlash against them, but a lot of people had to find other things to do. And it took a lot of people to come back. Like, I don't know what, what age most fish fans are, but I was 25 when they broke up. That's about the age when you really start to get, you know, thinking about your career or maybe getting married, having a family. So your life in the span of say five, the five years they were away, a lot of people's lives change. And so for the people who didn't come back, I understand that. I think for me, it was really just a stroke of luck that I did. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What would you say to other people like you who dropped off either, you know, in the late nineties when their sound started to change or after one of the breakups? Um, I, w I don't say anything to them actually. <laughs> I, I mean, well, I'm actually not being glib. I'm thinking of a couple people specifically who I used to go to a lot of shows with. Um, I don't think that convincing people, whether they're ex fans or they've never been fans, I don't think convincing people to go to shows or to listen to fish is a good idea. It, it's not the only reason I listen to fish is so that I'm, you know, filled with that emotion, whether it's joy or a combination of that and something else. That's the only reason that I listen to this fan. And I don't want to corrupt that by trying to get somebody, you know, into the, into them who really doesn't have an open ear. So for those people, I just sort of leave it be. I think that's fair enough, Tom. Well, Tom, thank you for joining us and talking about fish for so long. Um, also, do you want to talk about fish again? Oh my God. Yeah, of course I'll do it tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> it's been fun. I mean, it's interesting because like I and I think Matt and, and others have kind of, you know, started with fish and then went through the entire thing without stopping. And it's interesting to hear about the perspective of someone who kind of, you know, dropped off and came back. I think, yeah, pretty, I think that pretty cool, but I'm yeah, glad you're thing, back. Yeah. Well, it's good to be back. Thank you for having me. Uh, but I think <laughs> one thing to add is that Look, I'm not an old man. I'm 38 years old, but I'm 38 is different. Yeah. It's different from 20, certainly. Um, I think that just being a more mature person, being a more mature music listener helped me to sort of to reaccept them. Because 20, year, 20 mm. years ago, I think my 18 or 19 year old self was more of a rabid fan. Like I need to hear this and I need to hear this. And if they don't like, I went, okay. So I went to champagne 11, 1997. Right? That's one. That's one. That's one. Yeah, like, set to, okay. So that 30 minute Wolfman's brother that they did, I remember thinking then that, Oh my God, I don't really like Wolfman's that much. And they're doing it for 30 minutes. And that's kind of, that was where my, what my mind was then. But the reality was a, Wolfman's is not a bad song. And two, most like 27 minutes of, of that song is not really Wolfman's. It's just its own jam. So I, I'm, I'm more open to what they did then now, and I'm more open to what they do now, now. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's fair. Well, that's, that's a good, that's a good example. Um, Matt, what's your, do you have anything else you want to 
chime in with before we sign off? No, just uh, and the reason why I ask that question is that um, there are a lot of people like you out there uh, mm. that I've encountered in my travels and, and various corners of the internet. Um, I've heard about that same kind of thing from people who went away, particularly in the, you know, they were early fans, went away in the late 90s when things started to change. And really only in the last couple of years have started to, you know, either just go to a show on a whim or check back in and, and hear that, that things are going really well and they like what they're hearing. Um, so I think it probably says a lot about the way that uh, the band's been playing. And we've we've certainly talked about a lot th- about that a lot at nauseum in the past. So um, good to, to, you know, hear a, a detailed uh, description of, of your experience. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, can I express one concern that I have for 2018? Please. I have, I have this theory and I'm sure other people have brought it up before, but Every time Fish has like a stellar year, like 95, 97, 2015, and 2017, at sometimes there's been like a, a letdown in the following year. I hope that that doesn't happen in 2018. That's all I want to say about that. Yeah, it's a fair point. It's a yeah. fair point. We're going to make sure it doesn't. Matt, Matt is going to personally make sure it doesn't happen. <laughs> I'm on it. all right tom thanks for joining and uh matt thank you thank you as always and uh i guess i guess we're gonna let everyone go back to their lives what do you guys think should we do it get back to watching some basketball (laughs) get back to watching basketball (laughs) thanks everyone keep on rocking This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris Podcasts. What does that mean? Osiris is a community of great music and culture podcasts. If you like this one, go check out others at osirispod.com and get in the loop. Osiris is partnered with Relics Magazine at relics.com. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. I'm Amara Jones. Every day, the attacks on trans kids grow louder, and more anti-trans bills keep moving through state legislatures. In this season of the Anti-Trans Hate Machine, we're going to illuminate how the right wing has fueled these bills by generating a breathtaking and wide-ranging disinformation campaign. It's spreading like wildfire on the internet. It's then being discussed by families and churches. None of this is an accident. It's a strategy to delegitimize trans people and create a world where existence is a question. Subscribe to season two of the Anti-Trans Hate Machine, a plot against equality, wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast? That's Axe to Grind. Uh, and right now you're going to be getting a little a little taste of it, right down to the shaky microphone and all. <laughs> and my name's Bob. And my name's Patrick. And usually we're joined by Tom. Tom's the best. Tom has a real grown-up job that requires him to be at work. But we talk about decidedly not-so-grown-up things like... Hardcore music and things that people that like hardcore music tend to like. 
So that could be the latest shows, uh, revisiting classic material, talking about the new classics, um, all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a niche music podcast that, that you either love, want to love, or hate. Yeah, imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that, that uh, has impacted your life uh, and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week. So triangulate your speakers, think about jumping off the bed, singing along, dancing like an idiot, and listen to Axe for Grind podcast. One Hit Thunder is a podcast where we both celebrate and have a good laugh about bands and artists that had just one hit that we all know. Each week, we're joined by a guest from the world of music or comedy to learn more than you ever thought you would about some songs that you can't forget. And we decide if they brought the One Hit Thunder or nothing more than a One Hit Blunder. Look, if you listen to the show, you're probably going to laugh, and I guarantee you're going to crush next time the bar has music trivia. Tag Team, Jane Child, Meredith Brooks, Looking Glass, Sean Mullins, Eiffel 65, EMF, Crash Test Dummies, Crazy Town, Chumbawamba. We have hundreds of episodes in our back catalog and a new episode each week. So pass the duchy, make sure you're connected, and subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your pods.